Recovery Elevator, episode 343. I didn't know life could be like this. I didn't know it could be this beautiful, this this meaningful. So I'm just constantly astounded. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Charlie. He's 35 years old. He's from Kansas and took his last drink on July 7th, 2020. Listeners, this is my first podcast recording since the Recovery Elevator Retreat this past August that took place in Montana. For those of you who came, I want to say thank you for trusting me and the team. Thank you for opening up, for laughing, for crying and for helping me on my own journey away from alcohol. I've enjoyed all of our events, but I had the most fun at this one. So I want to thank everyone who attended, the team, the staff, and our incredible sponsors. And I'll circle back to this event later in this episode as it ties in nicely with today's topic. And real quick, here's a lineup of our upcoming events. Ditching the Booze starts Tuesday, September 21st, We meet once a week for six weeks, and this is included with Cafe RE membership. Then we have our virtual conference regionals. This is November 12th to the 14th, and this is also included with Cafe RE membership. Then we got sober alcohol-free travel to Costa Rica, January 15th to the 23rd. Registration is now open. And then we'll be in Denver, Colorado at the Hilton Garden Inn Union Station, April 14th to the 17th. Registration for this event opens Friday, October 15th. More info on all of these events can be found at the Recovery Elevator website. Thank you, Hillary, for the links. And before we get to today's topic, let's hear from Cafe RE. For years, I tried to control my drinking on my own, but I always felt alone and like I needed something else. When I discovered Cafe RE, I realized there were so many people just like me looking for a better life. Cafe RE is a private, unsearchable Facebook group that provides 24-7 access to a community of people whose goal it is to live a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find authentic connection, love, and encouragement. With supportive and educational chats hosted throughout the week, there are plenty of opportunities to connect with others on the same path. Cafe RE is a place where we grow and learn together, and with golden rule number 22, we have a lot of fun while doing it. For just $24 a month, you'll have access to the community, all of our online chats, the opportunity to attend in-person meetups, get discounts on sober travel trips, and get the chance to be assigned an accountability partner if you'd like. 10% of monthly membership even goes towards our service project, where we partner with nonprofits to help those affected by addiction. Head over to recoveryelevator.com and use the promotional code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. We hope to see you there. Today, as in 2021, the 21st century is a great time to quit drinking. If you follow me back in time to the origins of alcohol abuse and treatments, I think you'll agree with me. Now, you may have heard me say on this podcast and in my book, Alcohol is Shit, that most anthropologists agree that there was little to no record of addiction in pre-modern times. I read this in Dr. Gaber Mate's book, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. And I fully agree that addiction is a modern phenomena, and the more we learn about epigenetics, we are learning that it's the environment that creates adaptive behaviors such as a drinking problem. So I agree, 
That addiction, with the rates we are seeing today, is a new problem, as in only in the last 150 to 300 years have we seen addiction like we see it today. And despite our advances in science and medicine, addiction is still ramping up, unfortunately. However, of course there were accounts of people getting blasted and doing stupid shit for millennia, and some of the treatments toward this drunkenness were way off the mark. In fact, some were hideous. First off, alcohol has been around for quite some time. According to the publication, The History of Wine, the oldest seeds of cultivated vines so far discovered and carbon dated were found in Georgia, the country not the state, and belong to the period from 7,000 to 5,000 BC. In fact, in the Bible, Noah's first act upon emerging from the ark was to plant a vineyard. I actually don't blame the guy. He just survived a massive flood. Interesting fact about Noah, his ark, and that tale, around 12,800 years ago, Every major civilization on planet Earth had a record of a catastrophic flood, so something serious went down. Okay, let's get back on track. Here are some of the records of notable figures going hard in the paint with alcohol. The Macedonian king Alexander the Great, who built an empire from Greece to India, died at 32. And while the cause is still debated, there's no doubt that drunken benders contributed to the burning of the great palace of Persepolis, oops, and the murder of one of his top officers, Cletus, who had saved Alexander's own life. Oops. And Alexander the Great also hosted a drinking competition among his men, where the next day they found over two dozen troops had perished. Oops. Apparently, Julius Caesar had had enough of Mark Antony due to his non-stop wine-fueled binges. Some historians have estimated that two-thirds of Roman emperors who had reigned from 30 BC to 220 AD drank heavily. Yet it was also documented that only a handful of them had little to no control of insatiable thirst for the vine. In an article titled The History of Rehab by J.R. Thorpe, the author notes that the first discussion about potential addiction in history likely belongs to the philosopher Aristotle. And as the Roman Empire began to decline and Christianity began to spread throughout Europe, the Roman Catholic Church sought to strike a balance between moderation and intemperance. Wine was declared to be a gift from God, and while individuals were allowed to decide on their personal consumption, overindulgence was considered sinful. And according to researcher J.D. Rolston, taxation of drink, reduction in the hours of sale, and the number of taverns and other restrictions were introduced in the Middle Ages. And here are some of the archaic treatments used to treat this drunkenness, and thank goodness they are no longer around today. Alcoholics were often perceived as men and women of low character, and in some cases were jailed, tortured, and even executed for being thought to be possessed by demons. Elsewhere in the developing world, other methods were used in an attempt to curb addiction. In the 1600s, smoking and excessive drinking was punishable by beheading in the Ottoman Empire and by lip-cutting in Russia. That is horrible. And at the same time, anybody caught smoking hashish, in addition with excessive drinking in the 14th century in Egypt, would face the much more benign strategy of having their teeth pulled out. My goodness. Benjamin Rush, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, was also a pioneer of American addiction medicine, although he believed, as most doctors did of his day, that treatments such as bloodletting and purging with mercury would cure insanity. Heads up, none of those things work. However, Benjamin Rush also took a number of revolutionary positions, such as an advocacy of occupational therapy. Check this out. This is actually pretty cool. 
In his 1812 book, Medical Inquiries and Observations Upon the Diseases of the Mind, he wrote, It has been remarked that the addicted males in hospitals who assist in cutting wood, making fires, and digging in a garden, and then the females who are employed in washing, ironing, and scrubbing floors often recover while persons whose rank exempts them from performing such services languish away their lives within the walls of the hospitals. So check this out. In 1812, Benjamin Rush encountered flow states. This is something that I've podcasted about. This is when our mental energies are taken away from the addiction and new neural pathways can then begin forming. Benjamin Rush also saw more success when people worked together, as in did these tasks in small groups. Now, communal therapy was already embraced by Native American tribes, who found their own ranks decimated by alcohol as well. Writing for The Fix in 2015, Jody Doff notes that, In the 1750s, sobriety circles were formed in Native American tribes across the country. In their tradition of wounded healers, the belief that recovery from a devastating illness is a sign of a healer. Native American sobriety circles were led by tribe members who'd survived their own battles with alcoholism. How cool is that? In the early 1800s in New England, Puritanical ministers declared public drunkenness as a sin, and Native peoples as well as non-Christians were espoused to join the church to overcome alcoholism or go to hell. It's well documented this fear approach didn't work at all, nor do any fear-based approaches. However, scholars say the temperance movement of the 1850s did begin to shape public policy in the country, and half of Americans at that time had given up alcohol. During that same period, advances in science began to show doctors that abundant and prolonged alcohol consumption had a devastating effect on the human body, mind, and spirit. And in the mid-1800s, a Swedish physician named Dr. Magnum Huss coined the term alcoholism. Although the medical world still didn't know much about what alcoholism was, they began to recognize it has something to do with the environment. For example, Addiction specialists recognized that in areas, especially in the South, where one in five young men had died in the Civil War, that addiction seemed to stem from these intense traumas. Aha, they were on to something there. In the late 1800s, the wealthy would get isolated private treatment at home. The key word there is isolated. There's a fundamental flaw in this treatment already. So some of these treatments consisted of the opiate morphine, oops, and others would inhale amyl nitrate, which also was found to be addictive. Oops. The poor chronic addicts of lower social status were prone to being locked up. Jails, drunk houses for the poor, hospitals, and insane asylums all received their share of alcoholics. Yikes. However, there was some success in the late 1800s with the Keeley Cure, which was a dubious cocktail, which consisted of strychnine, gold, and alcohol. Oops. By the late 1890s, there was a Keeley Institute in almost every state and country. These Keeley Institutes were found to be very helpful and had a lot of success, but they later found that the cocktail of strychnine, gold, and alcohol, oops, didn't do anything, but what they did recognize was that it was coupled with conjunction therapy, group therapy, and communal therapy, and that's what worked. So alcoholism up until the 1930s was classified as a fatal medical condition. Some hospitals would refuse alcoholics because it was a waste of resources. Then in 1934, a gentleman named Bill W. took an experimental plant medicine therapy called belladonna, which is similar to ayahuasca. 
In Bill's downtown Manhattan hospital bed, he claimed to have seen the light, had a spiritual awakening, and then created the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. The cornerstone of this program is community and working with others who struggle with alcohol. When tuberculosis was cured in 1943, there were large hospital wards now empty. This real estate was then dedicated to the treatment of alcoholism, but not with Western medicine, mostly with the 12 Steps. This is when the split of Western medicine and addiction treatment happened, and it's a good thing. I feel Western medicine is great when a bone is sticking out of your arm or your appendix needs to be removed ASAP, but I feel Western medicine comes up short when it comes to treating cancers, autoimmune disorders, inflammations, mental health, and addictions. In 1949, the Hazelden Foundation was born, thus creating our modern-day rehab and treatment structures. Prior to 1949, an alcoholic faced three grim prospects, institutionalization in a psychiatric hospital, a life of crime in jail, or a life of homelessness and death, all of which were viewed through a prism of judgment on the afflicted moral's compass. However, in the 1950s, although the medical world still had no clue what addiction was, they still knew it was a fucking force to be reckoned with. In the 1950s, doctors recognized that 25% of all hospital admissions involved alcohol. This figure is estimated to be much higher today. So around that time, the American Medical Association, the American Psychiatric Association, American Public Health Association, the American Hospital Association, the American Psychological Association, the National Association of Social Workers, the WHO, and the American College of Physicians officially recognized alcoholism as a disease. In episode 339, I cover my view if addiction is a disease or not, but viewing addiction in this serious light as a disease is a step forward in the right direction. In fact, most insurance carriers in the U.S. and across the globe are now required to cover addiction treatment. So prior to the 1930s, addiction was classified as a fatal condition. From the 30s to the 70s, it was a chronic condition that required a lifetime of therapy and support. In the 1980s to 2010s, AA did the bulk of heavy lifting, and much of this took place in church basements with cigarettes and stale donuts. Today, a diagnosis of alcoholism is much lighter. Why? Because people are recovering from alcoholism at unprecedented rates. Why? Because the stigma is softening, and people are recognizing that this is more of a disease of disconnection and lack of community. And how do you address that? Well, at our latest retreat in Bozeman this past August, 85 of us did a group dance to a kick-ass 80s song. The song was When in Rome by The Promise. I love that song, and I'm really pleased with how this turned out. We did it on the first take, in fact. And there's a link in the show notes, thank you, Hillary, to this video on YouTube. So I'm mentioning this video for two reasons. Number one, yeah, a plug. And number two, this is our version at Recovery Elevator of how to treat addiction. If the opposite of addiction is connection, this is our way that we connect through movement, through music and laughter. I challenge you guys to watch this video and not smile and not feel better. Thank you everyone who kicked so much ass during this video. So we've got a ways to go when it comes to addiction treatment, but if my medicine comes in the form of learning a group dance to an 80s song filled with laughter in nature and other badass AF warriors, well, then sign me up. And before we hear from Charlie, let's hear from Exact Nature. Exact Nature loves partnering with Recovery Elevator because we are committed to the same goal, to help other individuals quit drinking and stay on this sober path. 
Exact Nature provides all safe, all natural, THC-free, proprietary formula CBD products. If you want to check them out, head over to exactnature.com. As a Recovery Elevator listener, use a promo code RE20 to receive a 20% discount on your order at checkout. That's RE20 at checkout. Thank you, Paul, for your introduction. And Charlie, welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Odette? I'm doing so good. Thank you so much for meeting me. Thanks for asking. I'm excited to get to chatting. And let's get right to it, Charlie. When was the last time you had a drink? My last drink was the evening of July 7th, 2020. So my sober date is July 8th, 2020. How are you feeling? I feel really well. You know, that that first four or five weeks was really tough after getting sober. It was a challenge. It was not my first time to try getting sober by any means, but it was the first time that I was successful. And now a little bit over a year later, I, you know, it's cliche. You hear everyone say it over and over, but it's because it's true. I didn't know life could be like this. I didn't know it could be this beautiful, this, this meaningful. So I'm just constantly astounded. Oh, I'm just smiling ear to ear. You know, you're past the one year (laughs) mark and you're right. You mean, it's one of those cliches, but it's true. We, we don't really know what's waiting for us on the other side on until we take the leap. So I'm really glad you're here. And can you give listeners a little background on yourself? Can you let us know where you're from? Do you have a family? What do you do for a living? And what do you like to do for fun and for hobbies? Yeah, definitely. So I am from the Kansas City, Missouri area. I grew up on a farm outside of Kansas City. And I have a a great family. We're pretty much all in this area. Uh, My grandparents built a resort back in the 80s, and we all kind of migrated here. So I've traveled all over the country trying to get sober. I've been to about 54 different facilities, but made my way back home. And this is where I got sober. And it's been amazing for work. I, I work at a RV dealership actually in my hometown here, as well as plugging my, my memoir that I've just written. I'm an author as well. And so my hobbies, I suppose, would be writing, would be blogging, would be experiencing life because it feels like for the last 11 years, I was only in a vodka bottle or a rehab or a detox or a psych ward. So to be able to go outside and experience nature and hang out with my friends and just absorb this new sober life, that is my hobby. And it's an amazing hobby, let me tell you. I don't think anybody had ever answered just living, experiencing life as a hobby. And you bet it's a hobby, you know, being able to be present and be here for everything that's around us. I, it's amazing. I'm really happy to hear this. And if I heard you correctly, you said 54 different facilities. This is treatment centers that you went to. Can you clarify this for us? Yes, yes, definitely. So over the course of my 11-year addiction, um, my 11 years of alcoholism, I attended 54 different treatment treatment facilities. Now, those were not all rehabs. Sometimes those were detoxes. Sometimes those were psychiatric wards. Sometimes they were rehabs. But each of them 
I was placed into because of alcohol. So 54 times I had to surrender myself somewhere because I could not stop. My health was deteriorating, my mental health, my physical health, my emotional health. So yeah, that's why life is a hobby. I didn't have a life for years. So I know it's kind of a simple, funny answer, but it's just, it's true. (laughs) It's true. Charlie, how old are you? I just turned 35 last June. Wow, Charlie, I I feel like you have way more stories than the time that we're going to have here to chat. But I'm very excited that we'll get to learn from you from your story. I don't know you personally, you know, some of the guests I know through our community, or through recovery, and I haven't heard you share your story. So I'm just really excited to get right into it. Let us know, Charlie, a little bit about your life, a little bit about your relationship with drinking. When did you start? Um, Let us know about the evolution of your relationship with drinking and what got you to start quitting. Definitely. Okay. Yep. I'll just jump right in. Then my first experience with, with drinking and with drugs, with marijuana was uh, 13. My mother passed away when I was 13 and it was a pretty traumatic event. And, and like a lot of children that age, I didn't know how to cope or to deal with the emotions I was feeling. So I turned to substances and it did not last that long, thankfully. I, I spent a couple months as the rebel child indulging in my angst. And then I saw the way that it was affecting my younger sister. She's about seven years younger than me. And that really kind of snapped me back into this is not acceptable. This is not how you should be coping with this. And I got back on track. Um, and that was really my focus for many years was, you know, be the good child, make something of yourself, do the right thing. And I didn't realize as I was growing up through losing my mother and then going through a couple of uh, stepmothers with my father that all of this emotional damage was happening to me and it was compounding, but I wasn't aware of it. So I go off to college and I, I do quite well in college and toward my senior year, I would say the end of my junior year, beginning of my senior year, I really started to pick up the vodka bottle. I hadn't really drank before then. I had smoked a lot of weed in college. In high school, I hadn't really done anything. So I I had been pretty naive about substances until junior, senior year of college. And I really made up for lost time quick, let me tell you. And I graduated college with a degree in theater. And I thought I was going to go out and and be this amazing actor because I had been trained under this, this Broadway veteran. And well, that did not work out. So I was <laughs> very traumatized from that. So now I have, you know, three major pillars that I still was not able to see, but, but now that I've gained some perspective and some hindsight, I can look back and I can see that in my early twenties, there was the unresolved trauma and grief from the passing of my mother. There was the emotional damage that was inflicted by a succession of stepmothers. And then there was a sense of failure that I was not making it as an actor because I was not cut out. I did not have talent. It it was not my lot in life. So all of this is, is brewing within me. And And rather than really break that down and try to work through that as an early 20-year-old, I just continued to drink and use drugs. I I got a job at a bank and and was pretty successful at that and kind of worked my way up the corporate ladder. And and that was great. You know, that kept some money in my pocket. 
but it wasn't doing anything for my spirituality. It wasn't doing anything for my creativity, for my emotional well-being. And I continued on like that for many, many years, working, drinking, working, drinking. And it wasn't until about 2016, 2017 that it caught up with me and my health would, would no longer allow me to consume the massive amounts of vodka that I was consuming on the daily, you know, like a lot of us. And when that began to physically catch up with me, that's when the detoxes and the hospitals started. And I started to hear conversations about alcoholism and, and know that I was indeed an alcoholic. I had to tether myself to it. But that didn't do it, you know, for many more years. I spent several years just going to detoxes and rehabs and hospitals. And it really wasn't until around 2019, I was out in California in my, you know, 15th intensive outpatient program, living in a sober house, really trying to do the deal, but but still floundering, you know, still not emotionally surrendering to my higher power, still wanting to have control, all the things that we just don't want to let go of. I was still holding on to, and I was out there, I was making good moves. And I was told, you know, you're not going to be able to stay in California. You have some legal issues that you, you must take care of back here in Missouri and Kansas, and we're not going to transfer them. We're not going to do interstate compactable. You must come home. So that was really rough on me. And I relapsed really, really hard that whole way home. It took about five weeks and several Greyhound buses and four psychiatric wards. And I got back home to Clinton and I was a broken man. I had nothing in my pocket, nothing in my bank account, nothing in me emotionally, spiritually. And I, I, in that moment, we're talking early 2020, right before the pandemic hit. So we're talking about January, February, 2020. In that moment, I thought, you know, this is your lot. This is what you're supposed to do. This is what you're supposed to be. You're an alcoholic. You're going to die an alcoholic. You've got family members, you know, your grandparents that have died this way. It's your pedigree. And I, I was like, okay, I'll accept it. I'll be an alcoholic. I'll just drink. So I went back to the bottle a little bit and it was around June of 2020, the pandemic had hit and I just saw the state that the world was in and I saw myself and I thought, well, maybe I should do something. And it was one morning at the end of June, I woke up and I believe I was finally in the right place to be receptive to the message and to the love and the faith that my higher power was sending because it felt differently. I woke up and I thought, well, why don't you, why don't you just try it? You've got all these, this knowledge from all these facilities. Why don't you try implementing it for once? And I, I still relapsed. Like I said, July 7th was, was my last time uh, drinking. And when I woke up on July 8th, I had had that emotional experience in, in late June, I had had a relapse on the seventh and it was terrible. I couldn't get blackout. You know, it's, it's when you reach that point when your substance of choice, whatever it may be, no longer works for you. You're consuming and you're consuming, but nothing's going away. You can't shut it down anymore. So July 8th hit and I thought, well, that coping strategy does not work anymore. So we really have to make these other ones work. And that's, that's what began this beautiful 
sober journey that I'm on. Oh, Charlie, thank you so much for sharing um, so much, you know, in, in your share, so much loss. I'm sorry about your mom. I mean, you were so young and our brains are so not ready for these big events when they happen this young. Our brains aren't developed. And then if you introduce substances early, it it becomes a problem, like you said, because we don't know how to cope with everything that was brewing internally. You didn't know how to cope with the loss, with a sense of inadequacy. And it's so easy to just want to check out. I mean, even now that I'm older and on this journey and have full awareness of a lot of tools, sometimes I still have that urge to check out. So when we're younger, I feel like it becomes, it's like a different terrain and it's much harder to navigate. I've been doing some reading about like, why is it? Why why is the drinking age 21? And why is it that early introduction to alcohol is a bad idea? Even if you're trying to quote unquote, teach people how to drink here, have a sip. It's because we're just not ready. Our, the brain of a young person is not the same as the brain of an adult. And I feel like you had a lot of rough things happen while you were still not mature in terms of like our bodies aren't ready yet. So I'm sorry. And thanks for sharing all of that. I want to know, you know, you said it wasn't until your body started physically breaking down that you started going on and off and seeking help in very different places and in 54 different facilities. But what was your mind telling you before your body started breaking down and showing symptoms that it was not doing good? Did you just think that drinking the way that you drank was normal? Were you doing it in secret? Like, how was your life outside before your symptoms started becoming physical. You know, that's so interesting that you asked that because to be honest with you from very, very early on in my drinking career, as we'll call it, I, I definitely knew that there was a problem in the back of my mind. I knew that I was drinking in such a way that, you know, you, I don't like these words like normal, but it wasn't normal. So for many years, I was like, there's something there, but like, you should not be drinking the way you are, but I didn't want to acknowledge it. So I wouldn't acknowledge it. I wouldn't really acknowledge it to other people. I did do a lot of drinking and hiding. I, I kept a lot from my family. I lied a lot. I didn't want people to know because if they saw the the amount that I was drinking, they would have urged me to do something about it. And I didn't want to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. I was happy being an alcoholic until my body would not let me. But mentally, yes, up until then, it, it was a dark place as well. I, I had lost my identity. I had lost my dignity. So in order to function throughout the day, I needed to, to be just completely hammered so that I didn't have to look at the person that I had become, it was dark. It was really dark. Yeah. You almost had to disassociate from yourself. It sounds like. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Because I just, I wasn't, I had not developed the skills and I wasn't willing to put in the time to develop them, but I was willing to put in the time to drink and deal with that hangover, you know, because that yeah. was easier for me at the time. Yeah. <laughs> Totally. And we learn to be very resourceful within our addiction. It's insane. Like the skills that we actually built to protect the thing that we don't want to lose. Like you said, you, we just don't want to let go of the behaviors and the patterns that are ultimately working because they are keeping us 
alive and our brain thinks that it's just helping us, but it works until it doesn't. And I'm really grateful that you shared that, you know, alcohol stopped working. There was a point where your rational brain was able to intervene and say like, this isn't even doing the trick anymore. What What's going on? And I feel like knowing a few friends, including myself, that have been to treatment and to different facilities, and there isn't an abundance of help for people like us. I feel like between centers not being affordable and resources not being available, it's it's tricky sometimes to get help. And 54 is a high number. How were you finding out and getting to all of these different places? Like you said, it wasn't all rehab, but they were all some sort of support for mental health issues how were you finding them and how were you geographically going from place to place was someone with you how did logistically this all play out yes that's a great question that i get a lot so let me break it down a little bit for you (laughs) (laughs) so first i i do like to acknowledge the, the privilege that I had, I was extraordinarily fortunate that I was able to maintain a job throughout the majority of my addiction. Mm. There were definitely pockets where I was unemployed, but the majority of the time I was employed. So with that comes insurance and with that comes the capability to go to rehabs, to go to detox facilities, to go to the hospital. Of course, I did rack up a lot of medical debt when I did not have a a job or insurance, but I went anyways, because that's what was indoctrined in me. That's how I had started. That's what I had learned. So that's what I did, regardless of insurance or job. I went to, now you don't get into rehabs. Let me just throw that out there, guys. You do not get into rehabs if you don't have insurance or cash, but you can get into a detox facility in a hospital. So I built up a lot of medical debt that way as well, but I was on my own. At a point, of course, it was out there and people knew he is really struggling. He's going to all these places. He's been in the hospital this many times. You can't hide that after a certain Mm -hmm. amount of time, but I still kept it very private. I knew that people knew. I knew that my family knew. I knew that my friends knew, but I didn't engage in those conversations with them. I didn't give them updates. I didn't tell them how I was doing. That was extraordinarily detrimental to me. Looking back, I can see that. But at the time, my pride would not allow for me to do that. Mm-hmm. So I, I found it by Google searching. I would call the number on the back of my insurance card. And then, you know, to be perfectly frank, after you do it 10, 20 times, you just kind of develop a knack for it. And it was a vicious cycle, um, but it was a very privileged one. I do know that because it does take some sort of means to get to these places And then when I did get there, the amount of therapy and some of the therapists that I got to sit across, it was amazing. And and very few people get as much therapy and as many therapists as I got. So that's, that's why I also like to acknowledge that I feel like there's a responsibility that falls on me with all of that knowledge, all of those different holistic, you know, holistic AA, and then just standard traditional Uh, treatment center therapies, I was exposed to each one. And that's kind of what prompted me writing my memoir and and getting my story out there of, you know, this, this, this guy who drank for 11 years, who could not stop, who went to 54 facilities, seemed hopeless. How did he do it? And I felt like I was an obligation for me to say, oh, well, this is how I did it through all of this therapy, man. (laughs) Yeah, you know, and I appreciate you sharing all of this. You said that when you had that moment of clarity that you 
thought, you know, I can put so much of what I've already learned to use. And sometimes we learn concepts that it's either we're not ready or we're, we just can't implement them yet, you know, but I feel like nothing's in vain. And even though maybe you had thoughts of this isn't working, I keep trying, I keep going from place to place. There were a ton of seeds planted along the way. And a ton of those didn't really reap until until now, until until you were ready. And that couldn't have been planned. And that couldn't have been, you know, a matter of a phone call to a center. It just, you just seemed like you were ready. And how was the time afterwards? I know early in the interview, you mentioned that the beginning was rough. And I feel like that is the case for many of us. But how was life after July 8th of 2020? How did you stack up days? Absolutely. Yes, it was, oof, man, it was rough. So anyone that's in those first few weeks, I feel you, but just stay committed. And what I had to do, I, like I've said, I literally had to implement every form of therapy. So there would be, there's, and there's a the day that I write about in, in my book that I hope will help people. And it's what I had to spend a lot of my days doing. So it was this moment where I was pacing my apartment and I really, really wanted to drink, but I didn't want to drink, but I wanted to drink. And I was just like, well, what do you do? So I turned on music. I cleaned my apartment. I later called a friend and then I went out and had dinner with my family. You know, I just, I was like a live wire. I distracted myself so that I wasn't sitting there thinking about the vodka bottle. And I was, after I'd kind of worked through that urge, you know, of distracting myself and, and ridden the wave, I was able to stop and be like, oh, wow, you just really just did what they told you to do in rehab and, and what they say to do in the meetings and, and you did it and you can do it. So, you know, that was, that bolstered me, that got me through that first one. And then when the second one would come around, it would be, okay, well, let's journal this time. Let's write down what I'm feeling. Or there would be a time where I would say, all right, I am wanting to drink. I'm going to have to meditate. So it wasn't one thing in particular. It was really pulling from everywhere and just kind of trying to really listen to my emotions and to my, my mental state and say, what are you needing, Charlie? Do you need to meditate? Do you need to journal? Do you need music? Do you need to talk to someone? What do you need? Because it cannot, it absolutely cannot be vodka. And that's, that's how I worked through those four and those, those four to five weeks. And, and each time that I would overcome a relapse and I would work through an urge or a craving, it would, it would feel so good that it would help the next time. And then as the months went on and, and I started writing, of course, there were a lot of other things that went into play, but that, that first month, month and a half, I just had to listen to myself. I had to be patient with myself, be forgiving with myself and distract myself. Yes. And credit yourself because like you said, yes. every time you did it and you didn't drink, every time you met the, like rised up to the challenge and pulled a tool and didn't drink, then you would get a little confidence boost. And I feel like that's exactly what we need. We need those to add up and to just remember, you know, if I did it yesterday, I can do it again today. And it just takes enough of those repetitions. I love what you said about just using different tools and distraction is such a good tool. I feel like sometimes it gets underrated, but I feel mm -hmm. like for me, it's one of the best 
tools. And sometimes like you, your description, you know, sometimes I'll do five or seven things. I don't even know which one is the one that did the trick. I don't even care. (laughs) Sometimes I know exactly. Yeah. Sometimes I know exactly, you know, I need to get outside. I need to go for a walk. Sometimes I don't know. And it's okay to not know when to like dabble and try a whole bunch. And so long as you didn't drink, who cares what it truly did the trick? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. As long as you didn't pick up that pipe or that bottle or that needle or bag of chips or whatever, then you succeeded. Did you start finding community along the way, Charlie? Because it sounds like you had like a built in toolkit from all of these experiences at all of these, at all of these centers. But what about, did you keep in touch with some people, maybe a therapist or some friends that you met at any of these places? How did you start having this outside of your own self? Yeah, definitely. I, one of the most beautiful things that I did get from going to all of those facilities was these amazing friendships and connections and networking that I still have to this day in my life. And I'm so thankful for it because there were people in those first four or five weeks from, you know, I talked to people that I went to treatment with in California, Florida, Kansas, Pennsylvania, like all over the country. I had people I could reach out to that were in varying stages of recovery as well. You know, sometimes it did help for me to just be a month and a half in and talk to one of my buddies got out of detox, you know, he just relapsed and done his detox and called me and, and it was reassuring to know, like, well, even, even if you do fall, you just got to be like him and, and get back up and keep going, you know? So I, I found a lot of validation, I suppose, from being able to reach out to my network of friends that I had made over these, over these years of, ten, of attending facilities. <laughs> yeah. And I appreciate you bringing that up, you know, because I do feel like once we do start making connections with other people that are in recovery or sober, there is definitely this fear of failure and this fear of disappointing, not just yourself, but now new connections that you've made. And I feel like we do really need to separate the idea that we lose value or that we will be canceled if we drink again, or if we fall off the wagon, you know, because that is a possibility for all of us. And like you Mm -hmm. said, it's almost just Mm -hmm. accepting it, being mindful of it and knowing that if it is us, we have all of the tools and we know exactly what to do to start again. But I feel like sometimes that fear of failure and of like having this persona of like, now I'm in recovery, now I'm sober. Sometimes that can really affect us negatively. Oh, it most certainly can. I used to, I used to be the boy that was concerned with days, you know, I would, I would get sober for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. And I would be so hyper obsessed with the days and, oh my gosh, I can't fail. And then I would fail. And what I had to realize is that we all have 24 hours, no matter if you've got 20 years or you've got a day, we've only got 24 hours. Mm. So it doesn't have to be this whole counting game, you know? And, And if I do fail or relapse, let's just throw that word fail out. If I do relapse, well, then I'm human. The important thing is how I react to it. You know, I'm not here trying to promote relapse. I'm just here saying if you're struggling right now and you're trying to get sober, but you can't quit relapsing, please be gentle with yourself. Please be forgiving of yourself. As long as you are trying, you're doing the right thing. Oh, Charlie, so many people need to hear that. So 
Thank you. Um, in terms of everything that was stewing internally for you and that pushed you to addiction, all of that loss and what happened when you were, what happened when you were young, the loss of your mom, the stepmoms, did you start processing all of that out at these facilities or when did you start focusing on that part of healing? I feel like a lot of the times we focus on just not drinking and getting out of these behaviors that are negative for our minds and bodies. But what about your heart and your soul? Like, how did you start healing those traumas and that pain inside of you? Definitely. And I like that you just said heart and soul, because I like to explain this as a disconnect between my head and my heart. So cognitively, I had processed that trauma pretty early on um, in treatment, I would say, because I went to a treatment center very early about 25, 26. And then I came, the rest of the treatments came much later in my 30, early 30s. So in that first one, I feel like I cognitively processed my, my trauma. I don't think that I ever emotionally or spiritually processed everything that had been done to me or had happened to me along the course of my life until really the end of 2020. I don't think until I had been sober about two, three months, was I able to really look back at my life. And this is when I had begun writing and had made a huge timeline of my life and was really analyzing everything that had happened and the order in which it happened. And that gave me the most compassion and forgiveness and understanding of myself that I didn't even know that was possible, that you could you could love yourself that much, but that's what I got through that. And it really was a way to heal the death of my mother and to heal the emotional trauma that my mom or that my dad and my sister and I had been through. And what was so cool is once I had healed that, I saw my relationships with my sister and my dad just magnify. Mm. It was amazing. You know, and it's very interesting that you mentioned that it wasn't until you were sober. And like I said, you weren't obsessing about drinking or not drinking. And all of that takes our headspace when we are in active addiction. You know, it wasn't until you were a little bit more removed from that cycle that we're able to actually address, manage, and actually have the capacity to hold everything that we have to work through. I was talking to a friend a couple of months ago as we were working through the adult child of an alcoholic workbook. And she was like, I don't know if I could have done this in early sobriety, like super early <laughs> sobriety. It's almost too much yeah. to handle. And you kind of need to take it layer by layer. Yeah, I agree. And I think that there's some stuff when you're so focused in, in the getting sober, it's, it's really not until you look around at yourself and you say, okay, I want to be sober. Yes. What else do I want though, beyond sobriety? And it wasn't until I could look at my life that way that I was able to say, oh, oh, I should probably heal all of this damage. I'm curious about your book. So did the idea of writing a memoir come through journaling and using that tool or what, what prompted that? That's so amazing. You know, the, the idea for writing a book had been something that had been in the back of my mind since around 2018. And in 2018, I had attended what I thought 
I was at like 12 or 13, I think what I thought was a lot of facilities. So I was like, I got to get this out there, man. Like I got to tell people this stuff I'm learning. So that's, that's when it started. Well, silly me. I like, I drank for years (laughs) after I had that epiphany and, and it was uh, the fall of 2020 when I was just kind of like sitting back and thinking about being sober in my life. And I was like, you know, I think you should write something. You had always journaled through through treatment, but I'd only journaled in treatment. You see, I had never used journaling as an outside therapeutic tool. It was only used in a facility. And then when I got out, I never implemented any of the skills I learned. I just went back to the bottle. So I can't sit here and say that it was something that I had worked on over the course of my addiction because it wasn't. It really was something I had thought about once. And then I came to later after I had been sober for a couple months and thought, well, now you really have a lot to say and a lot that you can help with. And I think this may be what, what gives you purpose. So let's try this. And that's what fueled a lot of that is wanting to, to get that message out there. And then also finding my purpose in the course of getting the message out there. And that's really It's not the main reason I've stayed sober, of course, but it's a big factor as to why I've stayed sober. Yeah, nothing like good old built-in accountability. And we really do need that. I feel like we go through seasons where it's it's hard. You know, like I said, even now for me that I'm a couple of years in, I have those moments and, and you need things that will definitely make you think twice. Like I think, I'm going to have to do a very interesting podcast interview. If I drink, I'm going to have a a big explanation (laughs) to give, you know, it's, it's such healthy accountability and I can't wait to read it, Charlie. You're going to have to send me a copy. What's the name of it? It's called at least I'm not the frog, a zany memoir of alcoholism and recovery. It's on Amazon. It did really well, actually, when I released it. So I was really thrilled about that. But yeah, you can just go out to Amazon. You can get the ebook for $2.99 or the paperback for $8.99. Oh, I'm going to get a copy. Thank you for sharing that, Charlie. And, you know, you did mention and you threw out the word creativity. You said close to the beginning of the interview that you were void of anything spiritual or creative inside of you or something along those lines. Yes. Yes. It sounds to me like writing a memoir is the total opposite of where you were when you felt like you had nothing creative within you. So how cool is that? Oh yeah. 100%. I mean, yeah, you hit the the nail on the head there. (laughs) What tools continue to work for you now that you are past that hard early sobriety chapter and you're over a year, what resources and tools continue to be valuable to you, Charlie? The things that I still implement that I was implementing in the beginning that I pretty much still implement on the daily. I am a huge advocate for gratitude, for gratitude lists, for gratitude mantras. I will say to myself several times throughout the day, I am grateful for and whatever it may be. You know, maybe I'm just driving my car and I'm just really happy that I'm getting to go to work and I'm not plastered and the cops aren't coming after me. And I'm just like, you know, I'm very grateful for this moment. And I think staying grateful allows me to stay humble and it just keeps me happy. I also, I still do a lot of meditation. Meditation is something I found 
pretty early on and attending all of those treatment facilities. And it's something that really stuck with me. It's very important to my soul. It allows me to decompress. And then the back of the big book, man, that's like, that's it for me. Those stories, I, I know that the first 164 is so important and it changes lives, but what changed my life was the back of the big book, which is the back of the Alcoholics Anonymous a book for anyone that's not familiar with that term. Thank you, Charlie, for sharing that. What are you excited about right now? I know this life is new and you're enjoying just experiencing it, but what things that maybe you never thought possible excite you now? Going to the beach and experiencing it, going to the mountains, traveling, I guess I should say. I am so excited to travel because mm -hmm. I did not think it was possible to go anywhere and have fun without drugs, a bottle, you know, something like you. If you're going to go to Mexico, you got to be messed up, bro. But you mm -hmm. don't. You really don't. And, and I'm so excited to, to travel and experience culture and remember it. You know, <laughs> I couldn't remember a lot of my trips. Yeah, we only get one life. And I, I really love hearing that gratitude is one of your your favorite tools, because I do think it's not only what keeps us humble, but it keeps us remembering how fragile life actually is. We tend to forget that, you know, and how fleeting it is. So yes, yeah, yes. you want to remember, of course you want to remember, we all deserve to remember. <laughs> yeah. All right, Charlie. Well, we've reached the rapid fire round. So if you can answer these questions in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabuloso. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. What's your go-to response when you go to a new party or social setting and someone offers you an alcoholic beverage? Oh, bro. You do not want me to drink that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty oh, my... open with my alcoholism. <laughs> yeah. My dad, it just made me laugh so much because my dad's usually like, you want to see this place burn down? Give me that. Yeah. <laughs> like, you do not want to go there. <laughs> <laughs> what's a light bulb moment that you've had during this journey that I deserve a better life what would you say to your younger self it's gonna be all right bud it really is hold on tight <laughs> <laughs> what's your favorite ice cream flavor vanilla with chocolate syrup what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze do it. It'll change your life for the better. And if you should fall when trying, it's okay. You're still perfect. You just get right back up and keep trying. And before we depart, Charlie, give listeners your own. You may have to say adios to booze if lying. If you're drinking Listerine like I was, and then this is kind of gross, y'all, but then your pooping is the same color as what you're drinking. It's weird. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie, thank you so much. I really enjoyed our chat. I'm so excited to get this out to our listeners. I appreciate you. And we'll make sure to drop all of the info for your memoir on the show notes. And thank you so much once again. Thank you. Yes. Thanks. Bye. Take care. Bye. Very well, Team Ari. That wraps up our interview for today. And before I say adios, I want to give a huge shout out to Grateful Snacking. Grateful Snacking is a company that makes delicious and healthy snacks to support our journey in recovery. All other snacks are made from 100% real whole food ingredients, 
They contain less than one gram of sugar and they are low carb and high fiber. I am mentioning this as the end of our podcast because grateful snacking isn't just someone that supports us, but grateful snacking is founded by Beth, who is one of our own, a sober warrior that wants to pay it forward by creating nutritious products to ensure that everyone feels supported on this journey. Grateful Snacking was with us at this last Bozeman retreat, and it was so great to have them as one of our event sponsors. I chatted with Beth on the phone before our retreat, and she let me know how important it was for her to give back to our community. I feel like her story is just proof that we are all here to help each other along the way. Beth listened to the podcast, she started her own sober journey, and now she started her own business. It never ceases to amaze me how this path brings us closer to our dreams and also allows us to be of service. Remember that you're not alone and together is always better. Recovery Elevator, I'm grateful we're in this together. I love you guys. Get out of the story. Get out of the story and use the mind to locate the body. Move the energy inside by talking, walking, and most importantly, trusting that the body already knows how to do so. We cannot fight a drinking problem or an addiction because it's trying to tell us something and we must listen. It's nudging us in a certain direction. Listen to the heart and follow your gut intuition. This will never mislead you. thinking.